Welcome back. It's Allison Graham here with the Resiliency Ninja podcast. And today's guest is my new favorite friend. We have been off air chit-chatting and it seems like we've been living a lot of the parallel life. So I have on the phone with me, Christine LaPerriere. Did I say it right? You absolutely did. I love it. Awesome. So Christine is the founder of Leader in Motion and the executive director of the Women of Influence Advancement Center. So we are going to definitely dive into that. She has released a new book called Too Busy to Be Happy. And I know many of our resiliency ninjas out there can uh, relate to that. The reviews are saying it's honest, insightful, funny. It's the best gift you can give to yourself. And it is definitely refreshing and relatable. So I'm going to be sure that you have a link to her new book, in the show notes. Uh, a little of the formal background, she actually is a mechanical engineer by trade. Christine in 2008, which was probably the best time, and that's a joke because that was a horrible time in the economy. She launched a sales and leadership training business, and now she goes into companies working with their workplace culture, implement, implement coaching philosophies, and helps leaders to operate at their maximum potential. Uh, thank you for being here, Christine. I am so happy to be here. You know, it's, uh, I, I always love to tell the listeners how we got to be connected. And what was really funny is Carol, who's a friend of mine and a friend of yours, was going to your book launch for Too Busy to Be Happy. And she said, oh, you know what? You really need to connect with this, Christine. And I, like, I'll have to look back at the timing because it's been a few weeks now. But like, within like a day or something, it was, I got a, a call saying, hey, or an email saying, hey, would you like to have Christine on your podcast? Completely unrelated, completely separate. And it was like, you know what? I listen to the universe. And the universe says, you and I need to be connected and chit -chat. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to say, I loved the fact that we are so connected by all wonderful people too. Yes, so. we do. And uh, Sarah McVannell, who's a good friend of yours, she was a podcast guest for me. And uh, people, I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it yet, because it's an amazing interview as well. So where should we start? Like, maybe with the, why don't we do this? Why don't we talk about where you're at today? So you're the founder of Leader in Motion. What does that mean? And what is happening in that world? So yes, I'll start with that. That's great. Um, the business that I run, Leader in Motion, is really focused on um, bringing together my passion for uh, implementation-based management consulting, a passion for training and development, and a passion for coaching. So basically, if you look at those three solutions that companies offer, um, at the end of the day, what I like to see is not just training for the sake of training, but um, helping people actually create a experiential opportunity to learn and practice and do something different. So I always say that's kind of the um, the mission and even the name leader in motion is more about not just the books that you've read. I've read millions, you can see, but it's more about the actual decisions that you make and the way that you use all of that education that you have as you're navigating your day to day. What do you think is the hardest part of putting all of those books and all of that material into motion? That's a great question. So I look a lot at 
how do we actually create frameworks in our mind that we can go to over and over again when we're in the moment trying to make a decision or when we're in the moment trying to take action? How do you quickly go back into those files and grab usable, relatable information quickly around how you can better strategize your next action? Okay. So the frameworks. So are you, because you did neuro-linguistic programming. Right. One of your skill sets, you have a black belt in (laughs) Sigma. Right. It's a very complex, it's multi-very problem solving. So when you look at an organization or you look at, you know, trying to design a car, you might have seven different variables that impact the outcome of something. So that's a very uh, specific type of problem solving where you have many, many variables influencing what's happening. Very and cool. so, yeah, I yeah. use the uh, Six Sigma black belt thinking, which is kind of funny. It's more from my engineering days, but it gets easier for me to see when I'm working with people and organizations and structures. It's easier for me to see that there's seven things influencing an outcome. It's not just, you know, we kind of, our, our human brains kind of look for the one obvious thing, you know, but a lot of the times there's lots of things influencing. Which happening. is so interesting because I think I do that. I actually, uh, not that I'm not aware, because I'm, I'm often aware of multifaceted things, but when there is something in front of me that I have to deal with, I usually pull one reason, one focal point, and move forward. I never thought, and I'm, I'm sure I'm calculating all the other angles, but I suspect that a lot of people do that. They just right. kind of like, here's the answer. That's a logical answer. I'll call that the answer. Well, we won't do any more work to figure that out because the answer's right there. Well, you're simplifying it in a way that you can actually bring action towards it. And so there is some real genius in operating that way. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I believe you just called me a genius, but I'm okay with that. That's good. I'm totally joking. Absolutely. (laughs) No, it's, it's smart to know though, that you can see lots of different variables. Like when you get into some of the types of problem solving that we do, Um, You can see that, but then at the end of the day, you still have to find, you know, it's kind of the 80-20 rule. You have to find the area that you think is creating the biggest impact and start creating change. And as you create change, you can actually test and understand whether or not you have additional things that are influencing. Like that's how you actually start to problem solve is how do you, you know, you start making change in one area, but you start to consciously understand what other variables might be at play. Very cool. So you were a mechanical engineer. I'm saying that right, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. Cool. <laughs> you did. Yep. Uh, I know what that is. And it's very different environment than what you're doing now. So walk me back. First of all, did you love it? Like, did you love being a mechanical engineer? No, not necessarily. It was, um, I love the creative problem solving, which is the part that we just talked about. That was my favorite piece. But um, at the end of the day, I really have a passion for people and not parts. And that was really the, the big move for me out of manufacturing into management consulting, which was, you know, I can't chase one more set of brake calipers around <laughs> this, uh, you know, plant because I'm, I'm very uninspired by that. But what I am really inspired by is the people component of how things happen. And so um, as an engineer, I would always be talking about culturally why we were going to struggle and fail and, you know, or where, you know, where I saw opportunity and people would say, you know, that's not in your swim lane, like, you know, get back in your swim lane, go, go do your J job. And so uh, when I moved into management consulting and got a chance to really start leading real transformational change, that was, you know, we were implementation based consulting firm that I worked for and we were 
very focused on actually staying with the organization for 20 weeks and helping them create a change. When I started to get to do that type of work, I could really feel that I was fulfilled finally and doing something that I was really passionate about. Um, and then ultimately what happened is in that management consulting uh, environment, the new challenge became, even though I was doing work I love, our days were incredibly long. We worked uh, 12, 14 hour days. The, the demands on each one of us was very high. It was known as a burn and churn work environment. People were very comfortable with the fact that most people would burn out and leave. Um, and I got promoted very quickly through the chain of command in that organization because I was doing what I loved and I was starting to display that I was very effective at what I was doing. But what ultimately happened, and this leads right into the front end of the book, which um, I talk about, is that I started to experience symptoms of burnout. And so I went through a breakup early in the year, and I noticed that, um, you know, in the evenings, I was working on projects that were, you know, really, really tough. I had just been promoted for the second time in under three years into a senior leadership role where I was now managing a team in Toronto and I was managing one in Newark, New Jersey. And so I was on a plane every Monday morning flying to Newark and then flying back late Thursday night so that I could help work with the team in Toronto. In addition, I had uh, brand new brand new staff, so uh, brand new employees that needed training and needed attention. And I also had one of the most difficult corporate clients that I had ever worked with when I was uh, dealing when I had these two clients that back and forth, one was particularly challenging culturally and wasn't really a great fit for the type of project we were doing. So I had a lot on my plate. And what happened is, is as I started to experience these symptoms, you know, one was the negative voice in my head. Uh, you know, I would, you know, I'd be working on something and it wasn't working and I'd be like, Christine, what's wrong with you? Like, why can't you just get it together? Like, you just need to work harder. You just need to work longer. You just need to focus more. And I would, you know, start to, and then, you know, over time, like you start to get even a little more negative and aggressive with yourself. So you're like, what are you stupid? Like, are people going to notice how you're completely not suited for this job? Or, you know, are people going to find out that, you know, they thought you were really, really good, but you're actually not very good. As a matter of fact, it's all been a big lie and you're finally been promoted to a point where they're going to find out that you're really very incompetent. So I'd start to have this internal banter going on. I also at the same time started to struggle to breathe. So I, you know, started into doctor's appointments trying to understand why I couldn't catch my breath. It was, it felt a lot of the times like there was a big stack of books on my chest. Um, and after numerous uh, doctor's appointments and x-rays and allergy tests and <laughs> sleep apnea, uh, they came back and basically said, you have a stress-related breathing problem and we just think you need to take Ativan and I remember saying to the doctor, when do I come off the Ativan? And he said, when you learn to manage your stress, but for now, never. And so oh. I remember thinking, you know, these things started happening and, you know, I kind of, it escalated at one point where I remember just not being able to get out of bed one day, laying in my hotel room in Newark, New Jersey and thinking to myself, um, you know, I had, I had struggled to get out of bed a lot of days. And at this point I'm laying there and I thought to myself, I need a break, but I need permission from other people to take this break. And I kept going, a vacation is not enough. It can't just be a holiday. And I started to actually fantasize about getting sick and really sick. So much so that I actually um, started to fantasize about cancer 
just for a brief moment in time, I had this fantasy about getting so sick that I could get a break and that people wouldn't judge me. That was the part that was so interesting is I didn't want to be judged. I wanted empathy. And um, for me, that was the game changer moment, really, where all of a sudden I realized, wow, I have officially become mentally ill and I, you know, have reached a level of burnout that I can't, um, I need help getting out from under this. And ultimately it kind of leads me on the journey where I took a big giant break and spent some time in Italy and refreshed. And then um, also a journey of learning, how do I build the resiliency that I need so that, um, you know, when I wake up every day, I never have to experience that again. Wow. Okay. That, all right. Where are we going to start? Uh, okay. Let's unpack this. So first of all, let's talk about your coworkers and the culture that you were involved in high level corporate burnout. Like they almost celebrate it. So nobody was going to give you that permission. I suspect you felt either if I don't leave this job, right. I am not going to get out. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I always say was interesting about the culture is if your project wasn't going well, but you looked happy, they would assume you didn't feel accountable for the work you were doing. And they would basically like that in itself right off the bat was a detriment. So, you know, we were all under the assumption that you, if you, if your project was behind schedule, you better look miserable, which is your sign that you're showing everybody you care. Which, Which is, is so, it's interesting and so unhealthy. Right. Right. Because like part of my whole resiliency mess- ninja message is shit's going to happen, right? You're, you might miss a deadline. You might miss budget. You might miss this. And we still need to operate from a place of joyful confidence. Right. And being optimistic, which is what makes life bearable in the face of all of these obstacles or things going wrong. Right. So I suspect they are not hiring me uh, for a corporate training day, whoever that client is. You'll see. Yeah, I was going to say, because I I think one of the things that's interesting, though, is that a lot of really ambitious people fled that type of an environment because, and and interestingly enough, um, went on to be really successful entrepreneurs because there was so much really fantastic, uh, like culturally people held themselves to a high bar. It was a very high performing group, but a lot of people couldn't keep up with the actual environment and that culture. Right. So that talent went on and said, okay, if I can get out of this culture and I don't have to look miserable and I don't have to be stressed all the time, but I can just spread my wings and be a really hardworking, high performing person. Um, you know, I've actually seen, like I said, I can think right off the top of my head, eight uh, people from that organization who have went on to be very successful entrepreneurs. Incredible. So they've had their eyes open, perhaps, that that's not the culture that would work. Right. Exactly. So the doctors, uh, this healthcare system, right, that we are blessed in Canada, and I know we have international listeners. So uh, in Canada, we get to go to the doctor, we go to the hospital, we can get investigations uh, for free, which is a real blessing. So wonderful. And the answer is often medication. So what they said to me with pain, you're going to go on disability, and uh, you're going to be on heavy medication for the rest of your life. And as doctors, often they don't know what else to say. And for you, how would you even operate on Ativan? 
Like I took two of those on an airplane when I was younger and I don't remember getting from Ireland to Canada. Like I got right. nothing, right? <laughs> right? My yeah, dad absolutely. was so afraid he would let me out of his sight. Um, so how did you function like that? Or, or did you just say, I'm not, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to figure out the stress thing. I never filled the uh, prescription. Wow. So I, you know, and it wasn't an option to me. And I think the one thing, you know, this is not to knock somebody who uh, needs a pharmaceutical to help through a really difficult time. But the struggle that I had, I mean, I, I was in the workforce when September 11th happened and people had really challenging things that I kept thinking, if I need Ativan just to cope with my day job, what happens when something really catastrophic happens that I, you know, that I truly can't physically cope with, God forbid, right? And so I, I kept struggling with the fact that all I had was a job. I actually, I mean, I made incredible money. I lived in a gorgeous high rise. I drove a red Mercedes. Like I had, you know, on the outside, if you had saw me walking down the street, probably if you weren't looking at my face, you would have assumed that I had a very successful life because for all intents and purposes, I didn't have um, really any conflict. Like that's the thing that I struggled with is that at the end of the day, I mean, sure, I was having an internal battle, but for all intents and purposes, you know, you're right. We live in this um, fantastic country. We have access to everything we need. And for all intents and purposes, you know, finances were not an issue for me. My health was not truly uh, an issue. Um, you know, and so I thought to myself, how can I be this unhappy and struggling this hard when, you know, I really the out at the outside, I have, you know, I have all the bases covered. And every time I tell that story, particularly about kind of fantasizing about getting sick, the first time I told the story, I remember feeling sick to my stomach. I was um, doing a speaking engagement and I went ahead and opened up and I shared the whole story. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm, people are going to think I'm crazy. I'm never, <laughs> this client is never going to call me back again. And I had three people walk up to me at the end and said, I have been there. Thank you so much for sharing that. You just helped me feel normal again. And now I've now shared that story more and more because I feel validated every time I do. Somebody calls me up or somebody walks up to me at the end of a speaking engagement and says, I've been there. And I, you know, thank you for saying that because I'm not crazy. I just talked to a woman one day who came up after I did a big keynote and she said, I was just laying in bed this morning thinking about how if I could just get really, really sick, I would finally be able to take a break. And it was just, um, it made me so sad. That's really where the, writing this book became important because it made me so sad that anybody um, feels that way. Well, and interesting, you're the one who felt that way first for you to know that. Like, it's sad that you felt that way and it's sad that it's rampant. Right. And I, I believe it is as well, because I, when I'm out speaking, I get the same feedback. Um, and I, I so want people to just not be caught in that busy, busy, busy culture. Right. And, and find the way, because as you talk about, well, you know, it's not about my stuff, but I have this resiliency set point and your coping capacity on the continuum of challenges. And you just articulated what I'm saying so well. And we knew that because we're so aligned in how we yeah. think about personal development, professional development. And it is, we all have a finite coping capacity and then it will elasticize for a big life, a big R resilience moment, like for grief. 
but eventually, like right away, it'll come right back down to where you are. And so if you're tapped out with all the bullshit, the job, the stress, the self-doubt, the, the personal crazy talk, all of that, then you don't have the ca capacity, the muscles, the tools to deal well with the big life adversity. Absolutely. And so like that is like, that's what's driving my mission. And it's like, see, we were meant to meet. <laughs> we definitely <laughs> were. We that's definitely awesome. were. So you wrote the book. Is that something you one day thought you were going to do? Like, did you always have this desire in the back of your mind? I'm going to write a book. Um, I think I've always wanted to be a teacher and I always wondered what I had that was unique to teach. And when, um, I got invited to teach a course called mastering me and I talk about this in the book and I kept going mastering me, what a terrible title for a course. Cause it's so vague. I have no idea what to put under the umbrella of this. And I started really thinking about what had I created any mastery around and I really truly haven't mastered, um, I mean, my life definitely has its stress and it has its ups and downs. There's, it's not perfect, but, but I really could see where I had created a very big shift in my own experience of managing, managing stress, managing conflict, managing decision-making. And so I started to teach this uh, kind of, I have my own, you know, uh, theory around this that sounds very similar to yours in some ways. And I started to teach this methodology and interestingly enough, people would come up to me at the end and say, well, where's the book? Where can I read more? Where did you learn all of this? And so it just felt uh, finally like I had a calling to write something that was very much uh, unique. And it was something that I had pulled from amazing coaches, amazing um, teachers that I had learned from over the years. I kind of pulled it all together. Psychotherapy, there's NLP in here. There's a lot of transformative coaching in here. And I pulled from all these different corners. And finally, something came out that was very, very much unique to me and, and helpful to the people that I was working with. Well, and too busy to be happy. I think people will resonate with that. They'll pick it up off the shelf and they'll say, yeah, I get that. And even if they're not willing to admit it out loud, they, they're feeling it and they don't know how to articulate it often. Right. So I'm really excited to read it. And I'm going to be sure that there's a link in the show notes for all of our resiliency ninjas out there who are listening. You've gone on two mat leaves since you started your business. You right. started your business in the middle of a recession, 2008, not a great time to start your business. I mean, I started in 2006, so I was two years in and I still wrote it, but yeah, we're brave gals. We are brave. <laughs> what has, or has there been a roller coaster of business ownership for you? Wow. The, the roller coaster for business ownership, I mean, you know, it's, it's incredibly real. So I think, you know, I talk about this for a few seconds in the book for sure. And one of the things, um, first of all, one of my core ideas is really around the path the fact that we have this concept called emotional real estate. So I basically say like, if you were to go inside your mind and kind of peek out the front door of the house, you have this front lawn, which is where I, I call this emotional real estate. And in this front lawn, it gets very cluttered with decision-making and conflict and negative self-talk and difficult decisions and relationships that are stressful and you know fear and doubt and uncertainty. All those things fill up and clutter our emotional real estate. And that's what stands in our way from being fully present in any given moment. So this is the construct that I started to use that helped me see, okay, there's a lot of emotional real estate being used on fear of not being able to book enough business 
or I'm using a lot of emotional real estate right now to manage a decision, or I'm using a lot of emotional real estate to write a book and try to market the book and try to build the business and try to have kids and try to like, so what I've found is that the tools around emotional real estate that I use in the book have been instrumental for me being an entrepreneur because I've had to stage when I'm going to use emotional real estate on very different things. So when I was experiencing very difficult fertility challenges, I had to be very conscious that, you know, in my business, I was going to use, um, I was really going to only use emotional real estate on client delivery. And I was going to make sure that I had enough emotional real estate to deal with the fact that uh, fertility challenges and unknown, you know, not knowing whether or not you're going to be able to have children is it naturally drains emotional real estate. I understand that. And I know that I need some space for me there. Whereas in the past, what I would have done is I would have layered on 17 projects at work and I would have pushed the fertility stuff around the plate all the time and tried to, um, tried to do it all. (laughs) And also probably not emotionally dealt with it well. And then as soon as one additional thing would happen, I would crack And all of a sudden you would have had me making either a terrible decision or me, you know, we talked about numbing out, like, uh, you know, using alcohol for sure is, you know, a quick way to try to, you know, calm, you know, calm myself down. Um, But I would have been doing all of that really poorly if I didn't have conscious awareness of, you know, balancing that emotional real estate. Wow. And and what point did you become self-aware enough to actualize that into existence? It, um, it, it was the journey. So I really can't remember the moment that it all happened, but it was the journey. So it was the study of the psychotherapy and the study of NLP. And um, one of the things that I think is really funny, and I mentioned this in the book, but the term emotional real estate came from a moment. I was still at the consulting firm. I had come back from my burnout and I decided to take a different role in uh, sales leadership. And one of the sales execs, was a challenge. He was just a big challenge. And I was on a three-way call with him and one of my team members one day, and he just shut her down. She was trying to bring an issue to his attention. And he had this Texas draw and he just said, you know, Diana, I'm I'm doing a lousy Texas draw here, but he said, you know, Diana, I don't have the emotional real estate for that problem right now. And he just (laughs) shut her down. And it was so condescending. And I'm thinking in my head, I just think this guy is the biggest jerk. But I love that term. <laughs> like yeah. somehow yeah. I grabbed that term and I'm like, that's actually a really interesting term. And what, what I actually noticed the most about him was that he, he didn't use emotional real estate on anything he didn't want to. Right. And so why he's actually was practicing a really great self boundary. He was just an ass doing it. Exactly. Exactly. And so it, it was this eye-opening thing to me where I thought, wow, he is, he is consciously shutting out anything that he deems unnecessary and unimportant. So it was, a, it was eye-opening for me because I never had a language or a way to see that. And I, you know, I kind of call it, you know, finders keepers. I stole it fair and square, took it as my own and then found that as I started to work with the term emotional real estate, I would think to myself, uh, you know, maybe if I had somebody that was disappointed with me, I'd be like, I'm not going to use any emotional real estate on this. (laughs) And, you know, Meanwhile, if, you know, if somebody calls me and they want my time and my attention, but I don't feel good about that, I, you know, I don't use emotional real estate on it. I shut it down. 
And I got very, the, the, the magic is budgeting that emotional real estate as if it was your time or your money, treating it just like the dollars in your wallet. So when someone calls you and says, I want your time, or I want you to care about this, or I want you to, you know, I want to get you involved in my drama, whatever that is, you need to think about opening that wallet or, you know, sanctioning off some piece of your front yard and deciding whether or not you want to give that out to that particular issue or that person. Right. What a, a great visual. Like I can see the football ball field. Right. And right. I can see how some people would load it up high, like right. with tanker trucks. I'm almost imagining like, you know, like those big, um, the ones like the, 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 you know, the big trucks that go right. on the, on the big ships, the shipping cargo. Yes. Yeah. And like putting that all on the field and then being like up high and people are operating like that. And no wonder they're heading to burnout. Right. And, you know, we're sitting there trying to figure out how to be more present and how to meditate. And there's so much, you know, so many of us are, we're the clickbait, you know, as soon as Oprah sends the eight tips to de-stress now, we open it right away. And one of the things is- Which ironically might be stressful. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's it. I found that actually trying to put practices in place like meditation for me were stressful. So what I've talked a lot about is, first of all, let's let's look at this from a different angle. So let's start thinking about how do we decontent and declutter? I keep kind of calling it the Marie Forleo method of internal work instead of just decluttering your external world, but let's declutter Kondo. your internal world. Marie Kondo. Kondo, sorry. Yes, yes. Yeah. Kondo. Forleo is also a very good, uh, she has lots of great ideas. Yeah. Right. I was just going to say, They're I'm sorry, great. I mixed them yeah, up. But yeah, good. it was uh, Marie Kondo who, you know, the decluttering of the external world, and now I'm calling it the decluttering of the internal world. Let's get really conscious of that. And also, um, the other thing is, is I use the term, the website and the Instagram handle are my work life wisdom and my work life wisdom.com. But I want us to start thinking about how to customize our own work-life wisdom personally. So, you know, if waking up early in the morning for you and getting, you know, seven emails done is really energizing, go for it. If you, you're, you're the one that likes to sit down at 10 o'clock at night and really vet through that big idea, perfect, you know, or if you decide that, you know, putting energy into volunteering gives you back emotional real estate. Good. That's good for you. Whereas other people feel like, you know, that meditation class is exhausting and draining them and they feel like a failure every day because they don't want to go. Well then that's not your work-life wisdom. <laughs> that, right. that one, that doesn't work for you and it uses more emotional real estate than it gives back. Awesome. Uh, okay. I know we're coming down to a close because we both have two o'clocks and we're recording yes. this and it's one fifty-two. So we are going to make, the final five fast questions fairly fast. And the listeners all know that these are the five fast questions that aren't fast. So that's okay. I'm all ready. Right. So ready number one, challenge. a book that changed your life. Oh, um, well, I can tell you that The Inner Game of Work mm. by Timothy Galloway was fantastic. I will throw that out there. Okay. And he talks about the science of coaching and what it is. And when you read it, it's, it, you realize how it applies to life. Awesome. So I'll say in a nutshell. Okay. Love it. Uh, a time in your career when you pushed through fear. Uh, definitely opening a business in 2008, eight days after Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. 
I've never pushed through fear more in my life. So there's lots of references to this in the book and it really kind of, I'm very proud to come out the other end of that. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. It's, that's awesome. Okay. And I, I would normally, if we had more time, I would ask you questions about that, but instead I'm going to ask people to read your book to, right. be, to be happy. All right. So if you could change one thing people do on social media, what would that one thing be? Oh my gosh. I, the narcissism that comes out on social media is excruciating to me. <laughs> the, the, the selfies and the, you know, I don't know. I, I, I would love to omit all of it. Yeah. Put the focus on the love and the success and the good news. And, you know, I think the younger generation, so one thing I've noticed, and I know this has been happening for a while, but I feel bad for the children who are, are not able to just be cute in the moment. They have to redo their cuteness so their mom can videotape it. Right. Right. And it's so obvious, right? It's like she did it authentically a moment ago. Now you've brought out your phone and you've said, honey, say that again. Right. You know what I'm talking right. about, right? And oh, yeah. So yep. this next generation, they just don't, uh, anyway. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, best or worst networking story? Best or worst networking story? I have a lot of worst ones, I'm sure. Um <laughs> Actually, it makes me laugh. So when I just launched this book, I send out a note to my entire network and I get a note back. This was really funny. I get a note back from a gentleman who says, I drove all the way down into the city to come see you. I bought you breakfast. You know, I talked to you and you never return my messages. I thought to myself, oh my God, I must have a terrible ex in my, in my database here that I don't remember. It must've been a bad first date. Well, I'm immediately thinking, who is this person? I don't remember his, I don't remember him. And so I Google him really fast. He is a small business tax accountant who I had a conversation with like four years ago about doing my taxes. And that was his response. To my, oh, and he said, and now you want me to buy your book? <laughs> and I thought, so it was really pretty funny because this gentleman who I had a one-time breakfast with about and a discussion around doing my taxes clearly felt very slighted about. Um, very. Very slighted. And so I sent him a note back and said, I'm very sorry that you feel slighted and I will remove you from all further communication. And then all of a sudden he said, he tried to redact his message. So you know how you get the message in your inbox that says this message is being recalled? Right. Except it, it, they never act like the original doesn't go away. <laughs> it doesn't go away. It just now lets everybody know that you tried to take that message back. And so actually I have to say that's that, I mean, I have so many beautiful networking stories, but that one wins as funny as a bad one. Yeah. And it's funny how people react and how sometimes we don't see the same interaction sometimes. I in a never situation. saw this. Yeah. Okay. Before I ask you the last question, where can people reach you? I'll be sure there are links, but go ahead. It's my work life wisdom on... Yes on Instagram. And also the website is myworklifewisdom.com. Okay. Um, you feel free to link in. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, meeting, meeting people through a professional network and LinkedIn. Um, I'm available on Facebook, all those other forums as well. Okay. And your favorite um, is LinkedIn or? 
LinkedIn's probably my favorite, to be yeah. honest, to really like connect, especially yeah. from a person or professional space. For sure. Okay. And last question, your favorite empowering quote. Oh, don't quit before the miracle happens. Oh, <laughs> that one. I love that one. And I remember, you know, my mom was on a weight loss journey and that came through at one point. And I said to her, I love this quote, don't quit before the miracle happens. And so it became one of our mantras and she actually did. She lost the weight and she was, you know, felt amazing. And it was just neat. We, it was so easy to give up. And we just kept saying, don't quit before the miracle happens. Oh my gosh. I needed that quote today too. Yeah, that's awesome. Really, I need it too. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you made me think of it. You know what? Practicing my resiliency ninja moves every day is, is my yes. joke, right? Absolutely. So, uh, listen, everyone. First of all, Christine, thank you for being here. Awesome to chat with you. Uh, we might have to have you back on on the that. We have so much to chat about and uh, to the listeners out there please be sure to share this to rate it to write a review that's how people get to learn about it and uh, reach out to one or both of us and let us know what you took away from this episode uh, until next time you've got this and do not quit before the miracle happens. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>